Both Larry and I did an awful lot of, unlike you, we did a lot of talking today. See what comes. So this evening I'd like to talk about one I think very significant aspect of the practice. And that is relaxation. So tonight I'd like to talk about relaxation and insight. So Larry, I think, began to launch that discussion on what the nature of insight is when we uh, talk about it. We use that word a lot. It's the name of this place, Insight Meditation Society. Um, actually means many different aspects. It has different levels, different ways to understand what insight is. Insight can be psychological insight. Insight can be seeing patterns of relating. Uh, insight can be seeing how things work in a very big way. No, volume? Yeah. Low? Yeah. Not too high, right? Yeah. Uh, can you turn that up just a hair? Uh, I'll try to project a little more, but oh, that's almost too much. How is that? OK. So insight, many different aspects, many different levels, uh, psychologically. Um, insight into seeing how things work, nature of impermanence, and certainly the work that we're doing here, I think the, the core work that we're doing that really ties all our themes together, which is uh, insight into the nature of suffering. That's what we're discovering, is we're bringing awareness into that um, area in our life. And also, not just... Uh, seeing suffering or recognizing that suffering is there. You probably already knew that before you began to practice. But understanding how it works, how it plays out. How do we create suffering? Is it possible to let it go and, and to begin to see uh, what liberation is all about? And, and also, so important is to understand the path. It's essential to see very directly for oneself what the path is to freedom. Because people can say lots of wonderful things, and you can hear a lot of inspiring dharma. But you know, until you, you get into the practice and do it, uh, and start seeing that there's freedom that's evolving in your life, um, it's very difficult to have confidence or faith in yourself or the, or the practice itself. Sometimes inspiring words can actually generate doubt if we're not learning and not taking a look uh, for ourselves. So what's the role of relaxation, and what do we mean by relaxation within the framework of vipassana? What we're talking about when we encourage relaxation is not so much that the body is totally free of tension or that there are no difficulties arising. Sometimes we think if there were no difficulties, then we could relax. But that's not the case. That's not the case. The nature of life is that the pleasant sensations arise and they disappear. Unpleasant sensations arise and they disappear. Challenges arise. It's impossible to live your life in this, on this planet anyways without facing challenges and difficulties. But, but it's still possible to develop the capacity to relax in the middle of all that. And the relaxation we're talking about is the relaxation of inner freedom. 
the relaxation of experiencing a peace within that's unconditioned. It doesn't depend on conditions coming together. It doesn't depend on having ideal or perfect conditions. In fact, this kind of relaxation can be discovered, realized in the face, in the middle of very difficult conditions. And that's a very profound level of relaxation. And of course, it requires training the mind, training the mind the way we're doing it here. Oftentimes, when we think about relaxation, I know in everyday life, there's, you know, there's quite a bit of discussion. I go on the internet, there's um, you know, lots of categories for different ways to relax. Um, there's technology, we use that to relax. Um, we read, write, uh, we watch TV, um, we take vacations. And, and many of these um, forms of relaxation, Vipassana teachers engage in everyday life, everyday folks, whether they're into Dharma or not, engage in. Uh, and uh, we're not down on those forms, okay, inherently down. I'm not like anti television. Uh, neither is Larry. We both own TVs, actually, if you want to know the truth. And we both watch too much news. Uh, that, that's true, too. Um, it's not always entertainment that we're watching. But the limitation of those kinds of, and vacations are great. I'm all for vacation. People should have more vacation time, in my opinion. Um, the trouble is, is that it, it, it's limited. It's limited, and oftentimes what we derive from these forms of relaxation is kind of a, a relief, you know, kind of a capacity to escape our troubles or, or to recharge. That's something folks often talk about when they go on vacation. Recharge, but it's recharge and then you dive in, oftentimes in the same way that you were doing it before. And so inevitably, if we keep doing, keep playing out things that aren't working for us, that delusion that Larry was talking about, the lack of wisdom, if we play that out in the work or in relationships, we inevitably begin to you know, hit our heads against the wall, begin to burn ourselves out and get quite exhausted. And then, of course, we need another vacation. Um, so what oftentimes these forms of relaxation lack is learning, you know, seeing things in a fundamentally different way. You know, in other words, wisdom doesn't automatically arise just because we take a vacation. In fact, what we need to learn how to do is learn from our life. You know, learn from our life, learn from the conditions that we're dealing with, and learn to cultivate this open, unconditioned relaxation. So I have quite a few suggestions in terms of supporting that inner freedom. The inner freedom that comes with understanding the nature of our suffering and liberation. The first one is like, let's say let's talk about this particular retreat and how it's unfolding. I can tell you one thing that if you could do it, 
I think about 90% of your difficulties you could let go of right away if you could do this. And that is, don't worry about how you're doing. Don't worry about how you're doing. See if it's possible to let go of the mind that's continually evaluating, continually comparing and analyzing, comparing yourself to your neighbor, comparing one sitting to the next, comparing one lunch to the next lunch, comparing one day to the next day, comparing your own experience with the experiences that you've read in Dharma books. So often there's a big gap, actually, in that one. Okay? Because when we begin to sit, oftentimes we encounter sleepiness and restlessness and agitation and body discomfort. And oftentimes Dharma books kind of skim over that stuff. You know, they're talking about freedom and liberation. Uh, and the reality of meditation practice is you, one has to develop a lot of perseverance and patience. One has to overcome and work with a lot of challenges and obstacles along the way. But if you worry about how it's going, it's, first of all, it's such a narrow framework in which we think of practice so often. You know, thinking of practice in terms of one sitting or even one retreat. Larry and I probably have, um, I'd say, probably 75 or 80 years of collective practice between the two of us in practicing this, you know, this form of meditation, you know, mindfulness meditation. And I know Larry would completely agree with me is that we're, we are a work in progress. Uh, you know, our work isn't done. In fact, meditation is a process of learning throughout your life. Knowing that is a good thing. Knowing that is a good thing. Seeing that perspective is extremely helpful. It saves a lot of torment. It saves subjecting ourselves to this constant barrage of measuring ourselves, judging ourselves. This is a good sitting. There is no such thing as a good sitting, and there is no such thing as a bad sitting. There's just sitting. And in that sitting, things are unfolding. Okay. The good and bad is extra. All we're doing is practicing with the intention to learn. And so there's no good. There's no bad. The other problem with this particular framework is it's built on the illusion of success and failure. And this is particularly so in the West. If you go to Asia and you practice with Burmese or the Thai, I shouldn't generalize, overgeneralize, but I would just say that the Westerners tend to be incredibly success-failure oriented. And the success needs to come quick. Uh, and uh, the failure is something that you dread. Um, but success and failure are so slippery. Think how relative they are. You know, think how relative they are. Uh, you, get, you, become, you have a good sitting, 
And then what happens to the mind? It clings. Finally, I'm getting it. I really, my practice is really developing and maturing. That's what we're talking. We're talking to ourselves. Next sitting, really restless, and the body's really aching, and the mind starts wandering like crazy, and then doubt kicks in. You know? and, and then you get up, finally the bell rings, and you get up, and God, that was a really brutal sitting. That was really a bad sitting, and I thought I was getting it. What happened? In fact, a lot of folks on their first retreat, one often sits for 20 or 30 minutes and thinks, by the end of that, you know, you've been doing that for six months or a year, one thinks one's practice is going pretty well. It seems useful, a certain amount of calm. Then one comes on retreat, and then things fall apart. You know, the experience is really different. There's a lot more body pain, a lot more restlessness, um, a lot more doubt. It's very common on a retreat, especially in the first couple of days, for doubt to be a very significant energy. And that whole notion of comparing and evaluating your practice from one sitting to the next or one moment to the next reinforces that anxiety, reinforces that self-doubt. So if we can just remember, stop worrying about our practice. Let the practice be. Just do your job. Just show up with the best of intentions to be mindful. and Don't worry about the results. There's definitely fruit in the practice. We would not have done it. None of us would have done it uh, this long if there wasn't tremendous fruit in the practice. But we can attach to results. It creates non-relaxation. It creates that attitude. It's so crucial to have wise attitude. And as as uh, I continue my own practice, and, and the longer I teach, the more important I see attitude. Attitude frames so much of how we experience ourselves, how we experience our practice. Uh, and if we have a very narrow, preconceived attitude about how things are supposed to go, if we have expectations or we attach to a particular agenda, it creates a lot of torment in the mind. It blocks, it creates a lot of obstacles, and, and it creates a state, constant state of self-criticism, non-relaxation, pride pops up every once in a while, and then it gets not, uh, swatted down, and we're back into worrying and doubting because things aren't unfolding the way we want them to. Things aren't supposed to unfold the way we want them to. That's not the nature of things. They have their own laws. They rise and pass away. Sittings change. Uh, I, I can say for a fact I've never had two sittings that were exactly alike, ever. There are, every sitting is new. Every sitting is different. One's life is changing. And that's one of the insights, actually. That's one of the insights is to see that things are changing from one moment to the next. And the, and the challenge is how to move into a different kind of relationship with that changing experience. And not to deny change. When we cling on to particular experiences, we're bumping up against reality. causes a lot of tension, causes a lot of non-relaxation. So this attitude, this wise attitude, is crucial. And certainly one of the main principles, something that both Larry and I have mentioned quite often, which is this attitude of 
of cultivating it. And it's, if you can't just stop worrying, then we have to begin to recognize when we are worrying or recognize when we are striving or recognize when we're feeling disappointed or discouraged. And to begin to include those particular mind states you know, as part of the practice. Because inevitably, anybody who practices for a while is going to encounter doubt. You know, doubt in themselves and doubt in the practice. It's inevitable. But if we can actually bring awareness to that doubt, then we're not subject to it. We don't have to buy into that voice. We can see it as thought. We can see it as conditioning that's coming out of clinging to an expectation. That's where doubt comes from, clinging to a particular expectation, placing a demand on our experience and getting disappointed in that, and also identifying with that experience, seeing it as some type of failure. So being allowing, being more accepting, crucial. So we will always want to be doing that in our practice. Can I make room for what's arising? Something provocative arises. Can I make room? How can I relate to this experience? Well, I can be mindful. Maybe wisdom will come eventually, but the first thing I can do is at least be mindful, acknowledge that that's what my actual experience is. You know, one thing Larry and I will never do, no decent Vipassana teacher would ever do this, which is to tell you what you should be experiencing. You know, you'll never hear that. You can hear that in a lot of other traditions. And you, know, you open up the newspapers, and there's lots of people telling you what you should be experiencing and what the right way is and what the wrong way is. That's not part of this tradition. That's not part of this approach. It's to see for yourself. Take a look for yourself. Find out for yourself. So opening, being more allowing, allows us to begin to explore ourselves. It opens up a space for greater understanding of what the state of things is. You know, if we have all these preconceptions, all these ideas about who we are and who we should be or who we shouldn't be, it creates all this tension. It knocks us out of harmony with things. And actually, all we have to do is change our attitude towards what's arising. And all, so much of the torment changes. All of a sudden, it just becomes what it is. Sleepiness just becomes what it is. Restlessness just becomes what it is. It doesn't become some great signification of success or failure or me. You know, it's just a kind of energy that's arising. And sure, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily pleasant, that's for sure, to be sitting in the med meditation hall at 2.30 and you're, you're just really falling over. I mean, you just can't stand it. Or the mind is just intensely bored. I mean, these, these states of mind can be incredibly painful. But what makes them more painful or what creates more suffering is how we're relating to those experiences. The fact is sleepiness, our relationship to sleepiness changes a lot. Did you, has anybody had this experience where you're incredibly sleepy almost every sitting and then you go to bed and you can't sleep? Has anybody? Any hands there? Difficulty sleeping, but not on the cushion. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting because you know we want sleep, and sleep is seen as a really great thing when we go to bed. But in another context, we're on the cushion. We resist it. We resist it, and that's what's interesting about working with these energies is to see how we resist it. You know, to see what we're doing with it. What are we adding to it? There's sleepiness, and then there's all these ideas about it.
simplest thing possible for most of us, anyways, is just to stand up if you're feeling sleepy. You know, and I'm noticing there are a few more people standing. And I feel encouraged by that because it gives me the illusion that people are listening. Because uh, I've said it about 10 times. Uh, and there are a few lone souls out there that I know there's a lot of people falling asleep, but there's a few people standing. And uh, I think that's good. I've spent uh, many, 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 many hours doing standing meditation in the hall because I was falling over. Very common phenomena. So we can see if this attitude is being much more allowing and accepting. You know, it just opens up so much room. The mind can just finally begin to relax with itself. It, 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 it lets go of all the drive to achieve. And of course, you know, this process of seeing those attitudes and gradually letting them go, it's a practice in itself. It bumps up against a, a very deep conditioning that we have. Uh, and this kind of conditioning of attaching to a particular expectation or demand, um, having a lot of judgments about ourselves, isn't just, um, you know, isn't just some, some phenomenon that, that arises for new students or new meditators. It's something that many yogis with lots of experience have to work with too because sometimes the longer you practice, you can imagine this, right? The longer you practice, how you keep raising the bar. You keep raising the bar. And, you know, uh, and the doubt can grow as we raise the bar. Instead of, say, appreciating some of the changes that we've seen, uh, instead of being grateful, for some of the freedom that we have experienced in practice, we often focus on the limitations of the unfinished work. Of course, that just feeds more doubt. So as useful, like what I would say within the context of a Vipassana, as useful as this attitude is of being more allowing and being more accepting and letting go of your expectations and agenda, um, you know, the Buddha was very practical. Uh, and that's something I appreciate about him. And very, these are very practical teachings. They're, they're related to our life the way we're living it. It doesn't matter what generation, where, what culture. Uh, I think the teachings apply in all situations. Um, but they're very practical. So, so how, how can we get behind this attitude rather than just creating another ideal like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be accepting and allowing because that you know, sounds like would be a good thing, um, would be useful. It sounds compassionate. That's for sure. It is compassionate, actually. Um, but but how, how to how to uh, cultivate that, how to put it in actual practice. Well, we're fortunate. We're fortunate as human beings. Uh, one, we're very, very fortunate to have this opportunity to practice here for five days. Uh, we're very fortunate, I think, to be exposed to spiritual teachings. It doesn't have to be Vipassana, but that uh, we're fortunate um, that we're actually interested in the inner life, 
because that's where peace is discovered okay. inside. So we're, we're fortunate in many levels. But all human beings are fortunate in that, that we all have an innate capacity to be mindful. That we all have this oftentimes untapped intelligence. Uh, whether we practice and develop and strengthen and deepen this form of intelligence or whether we just go through life very unconscious, uh, not knowing what our potential is, uh, not developing this kind of intelligence that we are practicing so intensively here on this retreat. Uh, so this quality of mindfulness, uh, it's in harmony with this attitude. It's in harmony with this attitude of giving yourself more room, being more spacious, being more open-hearted. Because the quality of mindfulness, this kind of intelligence, it's it's different than our thinking. As I said, our thinking often is um, conditioned. It's conditioned by our attitudes and our history and uh, our education. Uh, So oftentimes it's very limited. It's hard to make your way out uh, into liberation uh, just through thinking. Thinking hasn't worked so well for us, us human beings. We've become very good thinkers, uh, but not very wise thinkers. So mindfulness is another form of intelligence, uh, and it's open-hearted. It's silent. Unlike thinking, it has no preconceptions at all. Zero. Zero. No preconceptions. That's not its nature. Thinking, full of preconceptions. Mindfulness, no preconceptions. It's completely open. So when we are practicing mindfulness, what we're developing is this ability to meet what's arising with open, completely open-hearted attention. Now, when mindfulness isn't so strong, it doesn't feel that open you know, because it's mixed with a lot of self-judging and a lot of thinking. But as mindfulness develops, we get to see the nature of mindfulness. We begin to understand, oh yeah, mindfulness is just mirroring this experience. It's letting me know exactly how things are. Not how things should be, not how things shouldn't be, but just how they are. It's not adding, it's not subtracting, there's not a me in it, there's not a mine, there's not a success, there's not a failure. It's just allowing me to experience uh, restlessness, or it's allowing me to experience that unpleasant physical sensation or it's allowing me to observe my hunger feelings at 11.30, or it's allowing me to uh, be mindful and aware of anxiety and how it expresses itself. And it doesn't judge in negative ways. It doesn't say, well, I shouldn't be anxious. I should be calm and relaxed by now. Uh, I shouldn't uh, be hungry. I just ate two hours ago, or my body should be in better shape. I'm only 35, and here I am sitting in pain. It, It doesn't impose that on the experience. It just allows us to, to know what that experience is. It allows us to experience it fully. And that's the beauty of it. That's the power. So unlike our thinking, which is so limited and conditioned, limited by all sorts of ideas about who we are and what our experience ought to be. Mindfulness could care less. You know, it's not clinging to some particular ideal. It's just saying, oh, yeah, you feel miserable? Okay, this is what miserable feels like. Body's aching, I'm restless, bored, I want to go home. Okay, that's miserable. Okay, that's being miserable on retreat. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> the beauty of this silent attention, that's what I mean by silent. It's, it's unburdened by preconceptions. It just meets things. Uh, the beauty is that it allows us to disentangle. It allows us to begin to change. It allows us to begin to uh, free ourselves of the limits of our conditioning. I mean, even when I say that, I get inspired. You know, li- limits, uh, you know, frees us from the limits of our conditioning. One needs to be, in, that's, that's what this practice is about. Practices can take us in, many different practices can take us in many different directions. This is the direction that Vipassana takes. Freeing us from our limits of conditioning so that we have it opens up other possibilities in relating. We can learn from our experience instead of being subject to our experience. Rather than being victimized, we empower ourselves. Rather than being reactive, we develop discernment. Clarity. Understanding if we take a particular action, it's going to go in this particular direction. Over the last few months, I've had this kind of, kind of a buildup of um, looking for some type of creative outlet. And uh, when I was a teenager, my late teens, uh, me and my friends used to get high a lot, smoke a lot of dope, and we used to play guitar. We all had acoustic guitars. And, you know, we just played and played and played and got high and got high and got high. And, you know, I mean, we, literally some days I'd play like 12 hours. Some, you know, I was out of work or growing my hair long and just didn't, didn't really care about much. Um, and uh, that went on for a while, too long, actually. Uh, and what happened was we burnt out, all of us. You know, we just, one by one, we just dropped away. Uh, we'd stop seeing each other, we'd stop playing the guitar, and eventually, it took a little longer, dropped the smoke and the dope. Um, and I didn't pick up a guitar for like, hey, what, 30 million years, you know, I don't know something like that, you know. It's been a long time, put it that way. So I decided, you know, let's, let's give it another try. <laughs> so I went down to this store, which was a trip and a half, uh, this store called Guitar Center in uh, Boston, Fenway. And, you know, in my day, you know, there were a couple of big music stores, but nothing remotely like this store. I mean, just a huge, huge department store, mostly for guitar players. And uh, so I picked out a acoustic guitar, modest price, but I really was pretty and I liked it. I like the sound. And so I took it home, and I've had it home for about a couple of months. And, um, you know, I pick it up. Obviously, my attitude and my relationship to it has changed quite dramatically since then, uh, fortunately. Um, no big fantasies about being a middle-aged rocker or, or going on stage or any of that. But um, it is kind of fun. 
and my my attitude, generally speaking, is quite relaxed. Like I'll pick it up for a few minutes, you know, strum on it for a while, and uh, you know things are coming back, like the chords and you know a lot of the stuff that I knew in the past. And it's gradually, it's coming through, and my fingers are getting a little tougher because it hurts. Um, so when I pick it up and I start playing, uh, you know, it's very relaxing, very enjoyable, very fun. And then every once in a while, this voice pops up, this little old boy saying, boy, I wish I could play this better. Yeah. Uh, oh, I can't remember any of these chords, or I can't, my fingers just won't do what I want them to do, what they used to be able to do. Now, you know, they used to be able to move around the keyboard pretty, you know, pretty, pretty easily, the neck. Uh, now it's you know, really a big struggle. The fingers are going all different, <laughs> different ways. Um, and it's interesting because I pick it up right away. Right away, I see that little creeping voice, that little bit of expectation, a little bit of demand that I'm putting in myself. And in the moment seeing it, it drops. In the moment it sees it, it drops. And then I go back to enjoying it. And I just go back and enjoying it. Relaxing, because that's why I bought it. It was, it was to enjoy it. It wasn't to become a professional guitar player. You know, it might have been a fantasy 35 years ago. Definitely not my fantasy now. It's, it's in the seeing that allows that freedom to come in. It's the seeing that allows me to just genuinely enjoy the process. When I'm I pick it up for a few minutes, I get tired of it, I put it away. In the past, the conditioning was really different. Keep pushing, keep pushing, get better, get better. And just in the seeing of that conditioning, it opens up that inner freedom that we're talking about. We don't have to do what we used to do. You see, you don't have to, one doesn't have to play out the past over and over again. One doesn't have to play out one's habits, one's conditioning, one's patterns. As powerful and as deep as they are, there's an alternative. There's a, another approach that one can take, a fresh approach. But it takes waking up to it. It takes that awareness, the seeing of it. And in the seeing, there's a process of letting go, of deconditioning. The mind begins to relax. It doesn't have to go down those roads that are quite futile, that don't take us where we want to go. They don't take us to peace. We don't have to keep traveling down those roads. You know, we, can, we can relate to the here and now in a very different way a way where there's some choice. Uh, we can be in relationship with others and change. We don't have to always play out the dramas and the scenarios and the patterns and the uh, habits and the conditioning and the reactions of aversion or clinging or greed. We can begin to wake up to all that conditioning. And in, in the process of waking up, we're, we're actually letting it go. Now the key in this, and this is what's why this practice that we're talking about is not for everybody in that sense, is that it requires a lot of perseverance to do that. It takes developing a lot of patience, and you have to have a, one has to have a, a larger perspective of practice. When the perspective is so narrow, it, it's ridiculous to think of practice as how one sitting or how two sittings or how one retreat went. We're talking about letting go of our conditioning, very deep calm and peace that can come out of that in the middle of our life. So it's a bigger job than that. It's a maturing 
and a growing. And for most of us, it's gradual. There's a gradual awakening. Sometimes the mind wakes up um, very dramatically and we see something fundamentally different. And it's very inspiring. And everyone has those moments in practice. But then sometimes it's just, you just keep doing it. You just keep showing up. No expectation of results. You just know that showing up is going to take us down a different road than if we just play out our unconsciousness, if we just keep going through the motion. And so we have to value it. Not everybody values living one's life that way. And then even if you do value it, you have to, one has to persevere. One has to put in some effort. In my heavens, that's certainly what uh, folks here are doing. What we're all doing together is putting out a great deal of effort. But again, tricky thing is, how do you put out effort? How do you engage in this training and still nurture relaxation? Because doesn't that, like when you think training, patience, perseverance, like it doesn't sound that relaxed. It sounds more like really kind of a grind. And so a few people have mentioned the fact that the retreat so far has been kind of a grind. And it certainly, certainly does feel that way at times. Uh, I think for most yogis at one time or another, or sometimes more often, uh, more than once or twice, uh, it can feel like a grind. And so the key, and I'll, I'll kind of finish in, in this, this arena, the key is uh, bringing a lot of wisdom into uh, the quality of effort that you're making. Extremely important. The Buddha talked a great deal about wise effort. And the reason is, is he know that liberation isn't cheap. You have to earn it. It doesn't cost anything, but you have to pay your dues. You have to earn it. And so it takes a certain amount of effort. Other times, as practice develops and matures, maybe it doesn't take as much effort to be mindful, to be present. You know, it becomes part of a natural resource. That's really true, for sure. Uh, but then oftentimes, when that's happening, we're, we're working, as Larry mentioned last night, on subtler and subtler forms of suffering. And sometimes that requires a stretch, moving out of what we've become comfortable with and exploring what makes us feel uncomfortable. And oftentimes that's when we grow the most, when we can feel discom- discomfort but still bring awareness into that area of our life. So wise effort is crucial. And the Buddha talked about what wise effort it was. And basically it's a balanced effort. It's a balanced effort. The quality of effort needs to be gentle, endlessly gentle and kind and compassionate. Needs to have that softening quality. And we need to remember that over and over again, is that the quality of effort we're making is not this punishing, not this fixing, not in the improving or correcting, but it's much more gentle It's kind. It's being gentle, yet at the same time, gentle and non-judging. At the same time, it requires being with yourself. It requires that willingness to be with oneself. In other words, perseverance. It requires showing up with the actuality of your experience. 
with the actuality of your experience, that willingness to take a look at how things are and see what we can learn from it. So it's a balanced effort. It's not striving, but it's not overly lax. It's not indulging in all sorts of fantasies, which is too lax, but it's being mindful of fantasy, not judging fantasy. Okay? So it's a balanced effort. It's a relaxed effort. And the effort is essentially to be present, to be mindful, to keep coming back to where you are. And why is effort tricky? You know, it's, it, it's not simple because it's individual. You know, it, it, it has to be discovered for oneself. You know, some of us are strivers. You know, we're out of balance. We're really pushing. Uh, we're never satisfied. Um, we're, we could be in agony, but we won't move. Uh, no matter what. You know, like Larry mentioned the John Wayne. Uh, mentality. I thought he was pretty lazy, actually. Um, but I, I, he was macho, that's for, for darn sure. Uh, and the striving is, comes with that, you know, pr- pr- trying to prove something, you know, the striving. And sometimes the striving comes out of self-criticism. You know, we're just so down on ourselves that, uh, you know, in order to feel okay, we have to be like putting out maximum striving effort. Um, and, uh, you know, Many, many years in my practice, I dealt with striving mind, and it, it can really torment you. Um, it's painful to be striving. And so if you are a striver, recognize that. Just recognize that striving when it arises and, and meet it with awareness. Oh, so there, there I am pushing again. There I am clinging to a particular experience. There I am uh, striving. And, and then see if you can you know, take a few moments and relax your eyes. Let go of the breath for a few moments and just drop into your body. Uh, just expand the field of awareness a little bit. Do, go for a walk outside. Because if, if, one thing that happens is with the striving mind, you tend to get worn out. Uh, you kind of wear yourself out. Um, so be aware of that and try to find the, if, if you're a striver and you're sitting in a lot of pain, we'll stand up. I'll get you to stand up yet. Um, <laughs> Stand up or sit in a chair. You know, some people actually would rather die than sit in a chair. No, no. They, would, they don't care. They'd be practically crippled before they go into a chair because that's not how you meditate. Uh, well, you know, they're in chairs. They're in chairs. Many of us are in chairs. So one can meditate in a chair. So that's balance. It, it's realizing what you need to learn and moving in that direction. Now, some of us were just really tempted because out of sheer boredom and restlessness and fatigue. We're extremely tempted to indulge in fantasy. Uh, fantasy often is a lot more interesting uh, than that in-breath or that out-breath. You know, there's a lot more color, texture, a lot of pleasant physical images, uh, pleasant uh, images arise. Um, and it, it's a way to use up some time. Uh, the clock can go by quicker sometimes if we indulge in our fantasies. Sometimes on retreat, it feels like it's a really good time actually to plan out your life or plan out your next retreat or whatever. Um, 
So if you see that you tend to indulge, and some of us go back and forth, if you tend to indulge, notice that. Be aware of it and, and exercise restraint. Don't judge it as negative, but exercise restraint. Decide that you're not going to go down that road. Just be mindful of it. Come back to your primary object right now in this particular phase. Acknowledge that the mind is, wants the, you know, there's a lot of desire in that fantasy. So just acknowledge that energy. No shame in it, but it's a waste of time to indulge in it. We're not using the conditions well. We're using up a lot of energy. So use it as an object of mindfulness, and you're getting behind your intentions. You know, that's where we want our intentions. We want our intentions to be open-hearted, but yet really committed to using what arises as mindfulness objects. And, and tomorrow, Larry is going to open the instructions up so that things like fantasies and judging and comparing and all these kinds of different, maybe unwise attitudes or uh, ad- reactions to things, aversive reactions or clinging reactions, they all become objects of mindfulness, things to be aware of. And our practice really deepens and grows, and that's when we actually begin to move in that direction of unconditional relaxation. Because as we develop the ability to meet the changing nature of all these experiences, as we begin to wake up to the actuality of our experience and develop the confidence and faith in ourselves that we can meet these experiences without being overwhelmed by them. The mind really begins to relax. It gets that sense that no matter how life is going to unfold, when it changes, there's a loss that is painful and difficult as that might be. There's some little seed that's inside you saying, you know, I can meet this. You know, I can work with this. It's not unworkable. There might be something I can learn from this experience. And I don't mean that in a cliche. Okay. So let's just um, sit for a few moments.
questions. Thank you. And um, keep your practice going during this next period of walking meditation. And don't forget to relax. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.